If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians 15. We're continuing this series, kind of coming to the end now, the last two chapters of 1 Corinthians, that we've called What's Wrong with Church? What's Wrong with Church? And what we've argued is going back to chapter 1, 2, and 3 and connecting the dots to chapters 11 through 16, what we see is a big part of what's wrong with church is when we base our own uh, decisions and behaviors on who we are and what we want instead of basing it on Jesus. And we're continuing with that theme this week as we roll into chapter 15. We're calling it the gospel standard. Paul's taking them back to these foundational beliefs, the standard of the gospel, the standard of the good news that we believe as followers of Jesus. So we're going to spend four weeks in chapter 15. It's a really long chapter, so we need four weeks. It's like 58 verses. Uh, But it's also foundational in that it will come again and again back to the foundational doctrine of the resurrection. Followers of Jesus believe that Jesus actually lived, died, but rose from the grave. He rules and reigns. We just sang a song about the resurrecting king. He's resurrecting us, and we can trust that because he is the resurrected king. And so we're going to spend a few weeks looking at chapter 15, then we'll break for Palm Sunday and Easter, then we'll come back, finish up chapter 15, chapter 16, uh, and finish out the series. It's looking like for the summer, we'll probably do Proverbs. I think that's what we're looking at. I've been praying and talking about that with the elders, and we'll see. We'll let you know when we know what's What's next? What's our next book of the Bible? So we're in 1 Corinthians 15, page 960. If you want to grab one of those black Bibles, you can pick one of those up. We're in 960, 961. Um, The other day, I was helping my son out with a project. He's getting married uh, this spring. And so he asked me if I could measure him because he was going to get a new dress shirt for the occasion, right? And so I was like, sure, man, glad to help you out. And so I went to our sewing kit. We have this little sewing box with, you know, needles and thread and uh, tape measure and stuff. So I pulled out the little measuring tape, and I began measuring my son. Um, and, you know, I measure his neck, and I'm like, huh, that's, that's bigger than I would have guessed, you know? I'm like, okay. Uh, you know, he's a pretty muscly, muscly guy. Measure his neck, okay, it's bigger than I thought. Uh, measure his chest, I'm like, wow, that's bigger than I thought too, okay. Um, measuring his waist, his, his waist is bigger than I thought, and I'm, I'm starting to get confused. Measure his length, and his length seems too long, and you know, at first I was impressed, like, wow, my son's big, you know? Then I was like, this is strange, because I think he's lost a few pounds since high school, and these numbers just aren't adding up. And we both were getting more confused as we pulled in more measurements of, like, all these numbers are too big. So finally, I thought, maybe there's a problem with our standard, right? So I went to my construction measuring tape, pulled that out, right? It's solid, I don't think it's shrunk or expanded. I pulled it out, and I was measuring this cloth measuring tape that we had, and turns out that the standard was wrong. It was the wrong standard. That, that tape did, did not correspond with real inches in our real known universe. It was like the numbers were just all bizarre and didn't work, right? So we had to start all over again and, you know, remeasure everything. But I, I use that illustration because it's an example of what Paul is saying in the text. He's saying... If you are believing, trusting, and basing your life on the wrong standard, it's going to lead you in the wrong direction. He's going to use this phrase, believed in vain. And that's the concept there. It's, it's possible that, that you and I could be believing the wrong gospel. It's possible that you and I could be believing a different gospel, like some of the Corinthians, a gospel of self, a gospel of elitism. I'm better than other people. 
And so that's the question for us to be asking today. What, what are we actually believing in? Are we believing in Jesus? Is he the standard? Or am I the standard? Or are you the standard? What, what's the standard here? That's what we have to measure ourselves by. So he's going to describe this in 1 Corinthians again. We're going to read chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter's Aramaic name, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." He's taking them back to the fundamentals, to the basics, to the standard. This is the gospel standard. Gospel means good news. This is the announcement of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And he and what he's done for us, that's the standard. That's what we should measure everything else by. So let me pray that God would help us to hear this, to understand this. One of the themes that we've been saying throughout 1 Corinthians where it talks about miraculous displays and interesting gifts. One of the things we've tried to say again and again is we believe the most amazing and important miracle that God could work in our midst, the most important expression of the Holy Spirit's power among us is that we would believe this gospel and be reconciled to Jesus, that we would then begin to be transformed. We'd start to walk and obey Jesus. And then finally, the big miracle of finally seeing him one day face to face where he wipes away every tear and takes away every pain and every disease. So that's the big miracle. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would, would meet us here and, and work those miracles among us. Let me, let me pray. God, we ask that you would work here among us. We thank you that you speak through your word. We need your spirit to open our minds and our hearts to it, that we would be receptive, that we would be open-minded, Lord. God, we pray that we would more and more see the glory of Jesus who gave himself for us and that your spirit would work in us faith, trust, obedience, a transformed character, that we would be more like Jesus. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the gospel standard. It's the measuring tape, if you will, that measures everything else in our lives. And we have a simple outline here that we're going to work through. It's the saving standard. Um, it's the evidential standard, and it's the certified standard, okay? Saving standard, evidential standard, and certified standard. Now, these standards, we're going to focus in on the gospel message itself and what we need to believe to be saved, but this also works at a larger level for the entirety of God's word. And so if you ever study how we came to believe over history and the church, which books belong in this book that we call the Bible, how it all got bound together, uh, these categories that we're working through, that Paul is working through in chapter 15, 
uh, line up with the ancient categories of canonicity, which is the standard of what is Bible and what's not Bible. So these standards are sometimes referred to as orthodoxy, Catholicity, and apostolicity. So three big words we don't really use every day. So I'm going to try to speak more basic English, okay? We're going to go with the saving standard, the evidential standard, and the certified standard. Number one, we see the saving standard in verses one through three. And it's important to define saving. Saving in the ancient world had two primary meanings, just like it does in how we use it religiously, but it's helpful to kind of think about how it was used in a secular, non-religious context so that we make sure we're connecting the dots properly, right? So saving its initial definition would be just like rescuing someone out of a pit, right? Like someone's in trouble, you rescue them, you save them, right? And we kind of think of it that way. I think primarily when we think about our faith in Jesus, we think about it in, in those terms. He saved us from death. He saved us from being separated from God. He saved us from the judgment that we deserved. And so by Jesus taking our place, he took our punishment and he gives us his resurrection life. So that's that kind of initial saving But you'll notice if you heard when I read it earlier, there's this progress, this process, if you will, of saving that Paul talks about as well. And that was another common way that the word saving was used in the first century, healing, right? A doctor would save, would heal someone. So there's this process that we go through as followers of Jesus where our hearts are more and more healed. We learn to trust God. We learn to trust other people. That translates into loving God, loving other people, we begin to have a character that looks more like Jesus and less like our old selfish, addicted selves, right? We, we put those things off, so it's a process of growth that God takes us through. So saving means an initial, you're in God's family. It also means an ongoing, you're looking more like Jesus. And Paul's going to use it that way in this text. So in verse 1, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So gospel literally means good news. Uh, Gospel, those sounds, G-O-S-P-E-L, that comes from like old English, good spell. So it's it's good news. It's a great message, glad tidings, right? We're used to turning on social media or TV and seeing bad news, right? (laughs) That's where we live. We live in bad news world. This is good news, right? They lived in a similarly war-torn, broken, messed up kind of place like we do, disease and death and brokenness. But this was good news. This is different than the ordinary bad news we're used to. And it's preached. It's proclaimed. A preacher is not just a religious figure. A preacher in the ancient world would, would have been like a newscaster. It would have been someone who went from town to town proclaiming the news. It would have been like an ambassador proclaiming the news of the government. But it would also have been like a news person proclaiming what happened in the next town. So he's just saying, we, we're proclaiming this good news. This good news of Jesus. And it's something you received, he says and in which you stand. So received, that means I receive this news in the sense of I'm trusting that it really is good for me. And John reflects this in John, I believe it's one twelve. it's in chapter 1 where he says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we are put in his family. We're adopted by God when we trust in what he's done for us. We're no longer separated from him because of our sin and selfishness. And so he says, this is something you received and it's in which you stand. Like it's the foundation you stand on. It's your standard for life. It's not only what saved you when you first met Jesus, but it's what helps you to get up every morning. And then he says, unless you believed in vain. Now that's kind of a scary verse, right? 
And Paul is implying that we need to think about this a little bit. So Christians historically take this in one of two directions. Um, Some people would say you can get saved and then get unsaved. Uh, At our church, we would say, man, once you're really saved, nothing can unsave you because it's ultimately relying on Jesus and not our own strength. So we would refer to John chapter 10 where he says, says, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. You are safe. You are secure in me. And so then when we come to a verse like this that seems to disagree with that concept, we would say, well, what, what does he mean here? Well, the word uh, vain specifically means, uh, it's a Greek word, a-k, inconsiderately, without purpose, or without just cause. Like if you just look it up in a Greek dictionary, that's what it means. So are we believing inconsiderately, without just cause? Are we believing without purpose, without consideration? So Thistleton is a, a major commentary in 1 Corinthians. He would say, what he believes this means, and this is what I believe as well, is that Paul's saying it's possible to believe the wrong content to believe the wrong gospel. What's a vain gospel? I'll give you a couple examples. A vain gospel would be me believing that I can save myself because I'm a really nice guy. I'm really good. I, I water my grass. I wave to my neighbors. Nice to my wife, right? I'm just generally a good person. Work at a church, you know. Don't cuss too much. Don't get into too much trouble. Haven't been arrested anytime lately. Just trying to be a good person, right? That's kind of the, the vain gospel of religion. If you teach enough Sunday school, if you give enough to the church, if you do enough good things, if you support enough charities, then you will be saved. But that's not actually the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a vain gospel because it's a, it's a gospel of us. It's a gospel saying, yeah, we can save ourselves if we do enough good things. Now, just to be clear, God wants you to do good things, Okay. He wants you to be righteous. That's what he's calling us to, but he's saying you can't get there without his supernatural intervention. What's another vain gospel that we fall for a lot? In our culture, the non-religious vain gospel would be this. Just be true to yourself, man. Just follow your desires. Do what feels good, and then you'll be okay. Then you'll be fulfilled. We would say both of those vain gospels are missing Jesus for you and they're making it about saving ourselves. The vain gospel of religion ends up in a place of judgmentalism and bitterness. The vain gospel of of self and authenticity, that vain gospel of our day and age, ends up in addiction and self-obsession. But if we actually believe the true gospel of Jesus and begin to trust him day by day, he, he transforms us. I mean, number one, he gives us peace with God, right? That assurance that that he's there for us, that he forgives us, that we're, we're with him, that we're his child. But, but he's transforming. He's saving our character. He's healing us. He's making us more like Jesus. Not, not like this magic wand where all of a sudden, you, you know, you believe in Jesus and you never sin again. That's not how it works. It works in real time, right? But part of how it works is God sees you as perfect. He sees you for where you're going to be when you stand before him face to face, completely forgiven and healed and set free. You're, you're forgiven. You're in his family now. And that declaration of good news, that justification begins to melt and heal our hearts so that we begin to walk with Jesus. We begin to obey him. Now there's content, and I already said this content, but let's read how he describes it here in verse 3. 3 and 4, primarily verse 3, he says this in verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So what's the simple components of this good announcement? It's that Jesus died for our sins. So we talk about kind of the positive and negative side of salvation. He both died for our sins as a substitute, and that means he, he paid the price that, that we deserve to pay, right? Like we owe this debt and we can't pay this debt. We, we can't pay it off. None of us are good enough, right? We just keep sinking further and further into our debt of sin. But, but Jesus died to take our place, a perfect sacrifice. Everything that the Old Testament scriptures pointed forward to, that's now happened once and for all through Jesus. And also he rose from the dead. And so his perfect obedient life is, is applied to us as a, as a living, active life. He rules and reigns. Now this resurrecting king is, is resurrecting us. And so it's this active power of life that is, that is given to us. It's received by faith. And so that's, that's the good news. He died for us. He was raised for us. He, he's our substitute. He, he takes our place. He gives us hope. And so I think it's important when we look at this to recognize the standard of salvation is the first standard for the reality of the gospel. It's real because it actually changes people. And so in today's day and time, there's, there's more and more of, of these kind of skeptical takes on Christianity that say it's a made-up story that some kind of power-hungry bishops in a back room uh, are trying to foist on people, right, so they can have power and control. You just hear a lot of these messages more and more today. Um, sometimes Christian history is rewritten to say, yeah, they just they picked certain books that they liked that made them look good. These people, I guess, haven't actually read the Bible because it doesn't make anybody look good. But there's this conspiracy, and they picked these books and not those books, and they were choosing what they would believe and what they wouldn't believe. And I said this last week, but I think it's an important concept to understand. That's like saying that I have decided who my mother is, right? Uh, my, my mother's a lovely woman. Her name's Nita. Um, that's not her. That's a picture of... That's an illustration uh, P.D. Eastman wrote a book called Are You My Mother? How many of you read this classic? Oh, man, we got a lot of fans here. Are You My Mother, right? And so you got this little bird walking around, like, I think talking to a truck and talking to, you know, a cow and different things, like, are you my mother? Are you my mother? Finally finds his mother. Um, my mother's name is Nita. And if you tried to prove to me that, that she wasn't my mother, I, I could go through some work of, of like, writing some things down, and clarifying it, like investigating witnesses, right? And that's basically what church people did in the early days of the church, right? So when, when the uh, early church fathers were saying, this is Bible and this is not Bible, and this is Bible and this is not Bible, it was because there were attacks, people coming in and saying, well, what about this message? And what about this message? And what about this message? It's not like they just were deciding willy-nilly what was going to be the message. They were saying, no, this this message gave birth to us, right? Like, I don't, I don't decide who my mother is. My mother gave birth to me. Now, I could tell you who she is, but, but me telling you is not me deciding. And, and I think that's a really important way for us to understand how we speak of the gospel, but also more largely the, the Bible itself. This collection of the one of first importance message this collection gives birth to us so that Jesus can describe it this way when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's like, yeah, religious guy, you can't save yourself. You've got to be born again supernaturally. 
This message has supernatural power. It gives birth to new life. This uh, supernatural power, Romans 1.16, there's power in the gospel to save us. Do you believe it or not? And when you believe it, it begins to supernaturally change you. That's the first assertion. Do you believe this message? Or are you tempted to, to believe the other alternative vain gospels? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to judge you and say you're a terrible person. I just want to encourage you that it's not going to work. Like being religious is not going to get you there. You just can't be that good. None of us are. And Jesus was constantly confronting the religious leaders of his day in the gospels, trying to help them sweetly, trying to help them see that they were hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. And I would say the same thing to you. If, if you're like, no, Dave, I'm a really good person. Great. I'm glad you're a good person. Be a better person. Jesus calls you to be absolutely perfect, to be holy, to genuinely love other people and to sacrifice everything you have on their behalf. Are you that good? The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then the other message that our culture is giving us is like, just be yourself. Look inside. What desires do you have? You've got to obey your desires. Don't obey some external message, but obey your own desires. And again, I would say it's, it's not going to work. It's going to hurt you, and it's going to hurt the people around you. God enters into space and time and says, I love you. I've given my son for you. And when we believe that, we have this, this new birth. We are born again, as Jesus describes in, in John chapter 3. Okay, so it's a saving standard. It miraculously saves us. It gives us birth. It gives us new life. And I want to call you to believe that. If, if you come from a religious background, you may have just believed religion, but not Jesus. If you come from a non-religious background, you may have just believed in yourself, but not in Jesus. And it's as simple as just telling him right now, I see I've been, I've been trusting in myself and not you. Will you save me? All you have to do is ask. And then I would love to, to talk to you about that. You might have had a friend that you're with today. They'd love to talk to you about that. It's important to take next steps in community. Accountability of like, yeah, I'm, I'm really starting to believe this now for real. I'm trusting in this gospel that can save me. The, the next thing that we see is that it's an evidential standard. And there's a little bit of a contrast, right? So I was just talking about the miraculous work of new birth, that this message works in our hearts as we hear this message and believe it, we are miraculously changed. There's a supernatural power there. Now, what I want you to understand is that doesn't mean it's um, against all practical ways that things work in the real world. So just like anything else that we should believe or trust, there are reasons for it. So there's an evidential standard. There are, he's going to say, witnesses that saw Jesus who rose from the dead. He's also going to say that this is in accordance with Old Testament prophecies. So we've got two really huge categories of evidence that we're called to examine as real human beings in a real world where we measure things and, and touch and taste and, and investigate with our eyes and our mind, right? Like we live in that kind of world where evidence matters and we don't want to completely um, throw that out. R.C. Sproul has done some good lectures on the kind of history of of philosophy on this stuff. He's a Christian theologian that passed away a few years ago. And he talks about the Kantian watershed. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but Kant was a famous philosopher who was trying to let us have our cake and eat it too by talking about how, well, there are faith things that are important, and then there are evidence things in the real world that are important. And those are two totally separate things. I think Kant 
actually loved Jesus and was trying to help us out, but R.C. Sproul and I would say he kind of messed things up here because now we have this enlightenment world we live in that says, yeah, those two things never touch. They're totally separate. Faith and evidence don't go together. Problem is that's just not true, and the Bible puts them together. The Bible says the single most important historical and scientific thing that ever happened is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible also affirms that that's not normal. That's not like the world that you and I live in. It's not normal. People aren't just rising from the dead all the time. So it both affirms that that's outside the norm of science and history, but it actually happened scientifically and historically. Let's read the text. So again, in verses 3 through 7, starting in verse 3, we already read some of this, but he says, this is this message of first importance is what I received. I passed it on. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So it's repeated twice. That means it's important. How did this all take place? In accordance with the scriptures, specifically in context here, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures saying, this was prophesied, artistically prophesied and specifically prophesied, right? Isaiah 53 is a very specific prophecy that prophesies this suffering servant that's going to come. But in a literary sense, in a prophetic sense, and in a poetic sense, in all these senses, there are these pictures being given to us, foreshadowing again and again that we need a sacrifice, right? The entire sacrificial system is this like big theatrical display of God's holy, we're not. We need sacrifices to be made so we can be restored and forgiven and brought back into his presence. Our relationship is broken. So when you read the sacrificial system from that standpoint, instead of just the like, ooh, gross standpoint, right? Read it from a, what, what kind of message is being taught here and displayed here? We see very clearly that we need a sacrifice. We need someone to die for us and to rise for us and to live for us. And Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. So the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament says, this once and for all sacrifice is Jesus Christ. So now we don't need those temple sacrifices anymore because he's fulfilled all of it. They were telling us what to look for. So according to the scriptures, that's a major proof. The Old Testament for hundreds and thousands of years was telling us we needed something like Jesus. And Jesus is the only figure that makes sense of of all the foreshadowing of prophet and priest and king and sacrifice and all these things that we were longing for, Jesus fulfills. But there's this other kind of evidence that makes this message evidential, and that is that he actually was seen by witnesses. Real people saw Jesus rise from the dead. Look at this, starting in verse 5. He says here in verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas. That's just the Aramaic translation of Peter, Rocky in another language. So he appeared to, to Cephas or Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. That's a really important verse to people that would point to evidences for the resurrection. Paul's like, go ask them. That's basically what he's saying. When you follow the book of Luke and the book of Acts, you see over and over again, Luke like, yeah, here's the name of this guy, and here's this person, and this is so-and-so's cousin. You can go talk to him, right? Like, they're always saying, go ahead and, and ask questions. Investigate our story. The New Testament is not written the way we often think it is, where it's like, you better believe this and don't ask any questions. It's written in such a way that it invites our questions. The New Testament, the message of Jesus can stand up to our questions. Don't be afraid to ask your questions. This is what I think happens so often when we're struggling with unbelief. Really, it's like, I don't want to believe. Oh, here's a good excuse not to believe. I'm not going to ask any questions. 
Because I had a professor that told me it wasn't believable. All right, I'm done. Guys, that's not a real investigation of the claims of Christ. Do your homework and doubt your doubts. If you're a believer or an unbeliever, we all have these huge, vast array of different presuppositions and assumptions and beliefs. Even if you see yourself as a really scientific person that only operates on evidence, you have faith. Faith in what? You have faith in the evidences that you've investigated and examined. So I want to encourage you to examine the reasons, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying here, there were witnesses. All these people saw him. Most are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. We'll look at that last phrase in our final section. But he's saying there are witnesses. There are all these people that he appeared to, official apostles, regular disciples, followers of Jesus, hundreds and hundreds of people. There's evidence, mounting evidence. So again, we don't believe this just because it's declared, although we would say there's a supernatural power in just declaring the story of Jesus, but we also believe it because it's reasonable. Both things work together. You don't have to like turn off one side of your brain to be a Christian. Um, God wants all of us, and he communicates with us in, in this material world. He speaks the language that we understand. When you look back at the Old Testament, he came into their world, and he spoke their language of ancient Near Eastern covenants, right? He, it was a very culturally embedded language. When he came in the first century as Jesus, he spoke our language. He physically was embodied as a person. Like, think about it this way. If you were just starting from scratch, and hey, what if God existed? How would he, how would he communicate with us? Well, maybe he'd come and talk to us, right? Maybe he'd send prophets and messengers. Maybe he'd use stories and words. Maybe he'd talk to us the way we're saying he, he did. It's reasonable. Uh, more and more, we live in a world that, that has a hard time making sense. Some people refer to this as a sense-making crisis, right? Um, if you want news, it's really hard to find reliable news. I mean, I can find news that agrees with me every day, but I don't always know if it's true, right? Like I can go, well, I have these political preferences. All right, I have to listen to this news that tells me I'm right all the time. That's kind of the world we live in, so it gets confusing. Like, well, what can I trust and what do I not trust? And so then I end up trying to listen to stuff I don't trust, stuff I do trust, and just kind of shake it out and figure out what's true and what's not. Um, The war in Ukraine has, has been a horrific thing to watch. And there's questions sometimes like, well, what is that? you know, is, is that account true and is that account not true? And how do we know what to trust? So I grabbed a picture here of some friends that are there, right? Um, this is a family on the left that this guy ran a seminary in uh, Ukraine for many years. I've met him before, I've gotten to have meals with him, gotten to talk to him. The guy on the right is a guy from the States who's been working with these guys in Ukraine for like 30 years now for my old sister church in Temple. Um, so I know these guys, they're real people. And so when they tell me what's happening, there's like an extra level of assurance, right? And the New Testament works in that way. Like not only is it a message that's broadcast over here and you're not really sure, it's too good to not be true, but you're not sure if you can really totally believe it. Well, the New Testament says, well, go ahead and talk to the people you know. Investigate further. It's okay to ask more questions. And by the way, as an aside, some of been asking me, like, are there folks you know that you would trust that you could give to for relief efforts? This is a good guy. I know him. He's a real person. They're, they're doing relief efforts through Poland. You can go to their website at cldi.org. 
cldi.org. And you can give there if you want to give to that particular need. But the, the greater point here is that there's evidence. Our faith is not totally unreasonable. It's a reasonable faith. Even scientists say, I'm going to look at evidence and then put my faith in what I see. And that's what we're doing with the Christian gospel as well. We're saying, okay, this seems to measure up with what I see about the world. It's both glorious and broken. There are all these Old Testament prophecies. And there's journalistic and historic evidence as well. I would encourage you to research further, to look into these things. There are a lot of different explanations for the resurrection uh, that'll give you excuses to not believe, like the swoon theory, the stolen body theory, mass hallucination theory, the lookalike theory. There's all kinds of theories of like reasons, excuses to not believe. I'll be honest with you, there's plenty of reasons. If you really want to not believe, there are plenty of options out there for you. But I just want to challenge you to doubt your doubts and actually investigate them. Because I don't think any of them stand up to reason and evidence. I've got some books on the front row here that I put. They're just my books if you want to look at them after the service. Uh, one is called Raised by Jonathan Dodson. He's a pastor in Austin. Nice short book. If you don't want to read the like massive tome, this is a nice little short book about the resurrection. And one thing he really brings out here is that in that day and time in the first century, Jews would have thought the resurrection of Jesus was crazy because they were waiting for everybody to be resurrected at the same time. So they liked the idea of a physical resurrection, but Jesus did it wrong, in the Jews' opinion. And then Greeks, they didn't like the resurrection of Jesus because they thought bodies were gross. And they were looking forward to a platonic disconnection from the body, which is all spirit, right? And so both the Jewish worldview and the Greek worldview thought the resurrection was a little bit crazy. So what happened to change the mind of so many Jews and Greeks to start believing in it? Well, Jesus was appearing to people and transforming their lives. That's what happened. What happened to take these uneducated fishermen, these apostles, and turn them into these heroes that were willing to die for the story? Was it really because it was a lie or a mass hallucination? Or was it true? And they actually saw Jesus, and that changed everything for them. There, there are so many evidences that this is true, that again, I just want to encourage you, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, if you're a Christian, you should look more deeply at them so that you can have faithful conversations with your skeptical friends. If you're a non-Christian, I just want to, again, challenge you that you have lots of faith assumptions in your life. It's just if you're not a Christian, you usually don't call it faith. You usually call it common sense, evidence, reason, but it's all faith. The question is, what do you have faith in? And I want to encourage you to investigate these claims. There's another book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. That's up here on the front row as well. He goes through all kinds of reasons, both kind of sociological and cultural, as well as some of these evidences of, of the first witnesses. Um, and then there's another one called The Case for Christ. It's written by Lee Strobel, who was an investigative journalist. So he applies the tools of investigative journalism, again, to look at to look at you know, this from a historical standpoint, a journalistic standpoint, weighing the evidence, and puts that together in a really clear, comprehensive way. There's one more book I don't have on the front row, but I was talking to a friend about this the other day because I've heard this guy speak on the subject. It's called Cold Case Christianity. It's by uh, a guy named Wallace, and he investigates the claims of Christ as a former detective, right? So he applies that kind of evidence trail following, and it's really helpful to see how these things stand up. So don't... Uh, just continue in your doubt, but
but doubt your doubts and investigate the evidence. The last point is that it's a certified standard. This is a certified standard, and I'm using this language to kind of summarize the concept of apostolicity, the idea that there were apostles, there were certified messengers, and we see this in verses 8 through 11. It's not an accident. They knew who they were. They were sent by Jesus. It was official. It was authoritative. They were certified, right? So here's how Paul says it, starting in verse 8. He's like, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What's untimely born mean? People disagree on this, but my understanding is uh, the most common way this phrase was used is for an uh, underdeveloped baby that didn't survive, right? Like we would uh, pre- say a premature baby, or we would even refer to this maybe as like an abortion or some kind of baby that didn't make it. And so Paul is saying, in a sense here, um, I didn't get the full gestation like the other apostles, right? I didn't get to walk with Jesus for three years. I was malformed. I was persecuting Christians. I was killing Christians. I didn't really believe. And then he appeared to me, revived me, gave me new life, and sent me out. And so this is just Paul, part of Paul's um, description here of like, yeah, I was, I was messed up, but, but then Jesus gave me life, and, and he sent me out um, to, to lead and serve for him. So he says, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." He brings it back to like, this is the message. We all agree it's the same message. And yeah, I was different than them. They walked with Jesus for three years and then he sent them out. I was killing Christians. I was persecuting Christians. And Paul continues to feel guilt for that and this weight for that, but he keeps going back to grace. And so Paul's a model for us as we feel this guilt for the things we've done wrong and the ways that we've strayed from God. But we come back to grace and say, but, but by God's grace, by his kindness, his undeserved merit. He's made me his child. He still uses me. Paul's the last person on earth that should have been used by God. He hated and murdered Christians. And so he begins this, becomes this picture for us of like, this is what it looks like to be saved by grace. So he's bringing it back again to this saving standard of a God who supernaturally works in our life and forgives us and then sends us out to be his messengers. Paul is saying, I was one of the official messengers. I didn't I didn't deserve to be on that team. He even says, I worked harder than any of the rest of them. Um, We see this in Paul. It sounds a little braggy, right? But then he says, but it's by grace, by grace, right? Um, But even just, I think, in a very simple, common sense way, we could say Paul was beat up more. He was stoned more. He was whipped more. He was kicked out of town more. He he didn't take a wife. He kind of talks about these things even in 1 Corinthians, right? Didn't have a family. That's all he did was just give himself to the ministry. And he's like, yeah, I significantly have tried to work harder than the other guys, but really all of that's by God's grace because I don't even deserve to be an apostle. Just to be clear here, in case this confuses you, nobody deserved to be an apostle. (laughs) Paul's not saying they deserve to and I don't. He's just saying I extra, extra, extra didn't deserve to be an apostle, right? But none of them deserved, none of them deserved to be an apostle. None of us deserve to be disciples, followers of Jesus. It's always by God's grace. He uses us because he's a good God, because he's generous, because he's gracious. We've all messed up. And so for those of you right now this morning, they're like, Dave, you don't understand. I've really messed up. Paul, Paul's beat you, okay? (laughs) 
And he's saying, no, you haven't messed up so much that God can't use you. By God's grace, he's forgiven you and he's sending you. We may not all be official certified apostles, but we're all sent out by Jesus to represent him with our, our words and our deeds of kindness. Here he is clarifying, I'm, I'm one of the official ones, I'm, I'm certified. So it's helpful to kind of think about how the term was used in the first century. The term apostle, uh, most commonly just at its literal meaning means sent out, right? So anybody or anything sent out, that's what apostle means, sent. Kind of like missile or missionary, it just means a sent out thing or person or item. In the first century, the most common way that this was used was a certificate that went with imperial cargo. So the way that people would have used this in their everyday life in the Roman Empire in the first century was this certifying receipt that says, this is from the emperor. And so people would have kind of heard that second meaning when they hear that Jesus certified and sent out messengers. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 9 and in Acts chapter 1, we're told just in a real simple definition that an apostle is one who has seen the resurrected Christ and been sent out by him. So these are official certified messengers. We collect their words in what we would call the certified official word of God. We call it the Holy Bible, which just literally means the the special sanctified book. This is our special book, our most important book. It's a collection of many different books and letters. And we would say Old Testament certified prophets, New Testament certified apostles sent out by God on purpose. Um, So again, to counter some of what's said about the Bible and about the gospel in our Modern culture is like, yeah, they didn't really know it was happening. You know, it just kind of happened bit by bit over several years. It was a messy process, which means the apostles didn't really know they were speaking the word of God. And that's just, again, really not factually correct. Again, to distinguish, the book didn't drop kind of magically from heaven, bound by crossway books, you know, with our modern standards of, of glue and binding. Right? It was a messy process collecting the writings of the prophets, collecting the writings of the apostles, and that took place over time. But they knew they were certified messengers of God. They say that about themselves, and throughout the Scripture, we're told to, again, investigate it, check their work, make sure that these messages line up. And so it comes together in a process of saying, no, these are certified and these are, these are real. So... Uh, an illustration would be a Bitcoin. I have a picture here of somebody holding a Bitcoin. Um, someone years ago gave my son a physical Bitcoin. Um, and lately I was talking to a friend that's into that kind of thing. We don't really know anything about it. Uh, he was like, oh, that, that could be worth something. And, and so we started investigating and it had like a code number and it looked legit. And I started looking online and there were coins online that looked like our coin and they were worth a lot of money, Right maybe $10,000 or something. We were getting really excited. So I was asking my friend for help and he was looking at it and he was like, oh yeah, that's, it's not certified. It's not, it's not official. Oh, that's a letdown. It, it wasn't real, right? It looked like the real thing, but it wasn't the real thing. So we all know there, there are possibilities like that, things that can purport to be the real thing and then not actually be the real thing. Well, the apostles knew they were certified by Jesus. Here are some cross-references for you. I'm not going to read all of them, but 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul says that what Luke says is Scripture. And then 2 Peter 3.1, Peter says that what the prophet said in the Old Testament goes along with the same authority of what Jesus says in the New Testament. Then Peter continues in 2 Peter 3.15 and 16, and he says, yeah, 
and the words and writings of Paul are also Scripture. And some of them are harder to understand than others, but they're Scripture, and don't let people twist them. So you've got Peter affirming Paul, and Paul affirming Luke, and Peter also affirming the Old Testament prophets. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, where we were last week, Paul was like, hey, if you have a dream or a vision, and people bring that forward in the, in the body of Christ, but it doesn't match up with my words as a certified apostle, then we throw it out. So Paul and Peter and all these other scripture writers knew that they were speaking in a certified, official, authoritative way. So we would say, this is the Supreme Court. So another way to translate this into our community, there could be a misunderstanding that I am like the special anointed one of God that has a special authority. Just so you know, I do not, okay? The authority I have is here. This is my authority. Because as long as I'm speaking the words of the prophets and the apostles, then you should listen to it authoritatively because it's God's word, not because Dave said it. And so part of a healthy body is then you challenging me. When I say something that doesn't smell like Bible, you're like, you said that weird thing. Was that in there? Can you show me that? Can you help me understand that? And that's going to help me to be sharper as a teacher of the Bible. It's also going to help you be sharper as someone who is under authority and listens only to the certified, authoritative, sent messengers of God. So this is our Supreme Court. This is our standard. So the job of the elders and pastors at the church is to weigh what's said and weigh the curriculums we're using by, by this certified gold standard here. Um, Martin Luther talks about this doctrine, the clarity of Scripture. It's an important doctrine that a lot of reformers talked about because in the ancient medieval church, the church leaders would say, it's so complicated, don't read it. We'll take care of it for you, right? And the reformers threw that off and said, no, we want everybody to have a Bible that they can read. We still believe in such a thing as teachers and leaders, but we're all looking at the same book. Let's all read it together. It's clear, but it's clear on the important things, right? Peter says in 2 Peter 3, yes, some of the things Paul says are harder to understand. So there are more clear things and less clear things. Martin Luther writes about this doctrine. It's also called the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, And Luther says this in his little book, The Bondage of the Will. Luther says, We dare not attribute to Scripture the limitations of our hearts and minds. We dare not attribute to this book the limitations of our hearts and minds, right? So what does that mean? When we read something that we struggle with, we might be misunderstanding it, and we might need to do further study. A lot of times when we read something we disagree with, it's because our heart wants to be king, We want to be in charge. We don't want anybody telling us what to do, even if he's the God of the universe that died for us. And so I just want to make this a final application for us. We we have a certified authority, and there's reasons to believe it. And frankly, just from a poetic standpoint, this, this message is too good to not be true. It's the only message that makes sense of this world that we live in. It's the only message that brings it all together. And so the question is, are we, are we going to bow to any other authority? Or in the end, are we our own judge? Are we our own king? For us, this would look like reading Scripture and obeying it. And not wasting a lot of time on the excuses you have not to obey it. But saying, yeah, there's some really clear things he told me. Like, I'm a sinner. Yeah, that's true. Just common sense, I'm a sinner. I know I need forgiveness. I know I need a Savior. Are you willing to obey those scriptures? Other things like loving others and caring for others, right? Yeah, common sense would say that's a good way to go. 
And I would say you're going to actually understand Scripture more as you submit your heart to Scripture. The more I obey Scripture, the more I actually try it out, not because it always makes sense on the first reading, but because Jesus makes sense, because He loves me, then the more I trust Him and obey Him, the more it starts to make sense. It becomes more coherent. It, it, it holds together more clearly in my own heart, my own mind. Practice the truth. Don't just read it, but practice it. We need to wrap up here. question is, are we the standard of truth, or is Jesus the standard of truth? We, we're saying that Paul's laying down this message of first importance, this gospel standard. And so the big idea here is that, that Jesus is the ultimate standard. None of us measure up to the standard that Jesus is. None of us. And that's the bad news of the gospel. The bad news is that we all fall short. None of us have loved each other the way we should. None of us have, have performed righteous acts like we wish we had throughout our life. And so that's the bad news of judgment as we look at the perfect standard of Jesus. But here's the beautiful thing that the New Testament says, is that perfect standard is a person. And, and Jesus wraps his perfection around you by faith. The most common description of our faith in the New Testament is that we are in Christ. It's not, look at that standard and then try to perform it. It's recognize that you failed and ask him. And he will wrap his perfect standard around you so that you are in him. You are whole, you're complete because he loves you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've given us yourself, that you are the perfect standard. But not only are you this separate standard we can look at, you're a standard that invades our lives, that shows us grace, that gives us new birth. Help us, Lord. Help us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.